0: It is truly amazing that an all-sovereign, all-sufficient Christ would allow us access into the throne room. The veil is torn today. Right now, you have access to God the Father. I mean, not only does he hear your prayers, but he hears your praises as well because of what Christ did for us. So now the veil is torn and we have wide open access to a glorious, sovereign, and all-sufficient King. Are you afraid? Do you praise God for that this morning? Amen. Please join me in taking your Bibles and turning again to the book of Colossians chapter two. Colossians two will be in verses 11 through 15 this morning as we talk about what it looks like to have a total and complete gospel. I was told growing up that close only counted in two things. Horseshoes and hand grenades. That's what I was told. Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. I didn't even know what that meant growing up because we never threw horseshoes. So I didn't understand that that was about a game and what that actually looks like. But as I've grown up, that there's a lot of truth in that. Close and finished are two completely different words. Students, let me, l- l- let me just illustrate that with you. Let's just say you've got a test tomorrow. And I ask you this question. Are you finished studying for your test? And you said... I'm close. Close means you're probably going to fail that test tomorrow. What about this? My wife is a patient woman, but every now and then she's cooking dinner. And so at night I'll ask, I'll be like, is supper ready? Is supper ready? And she'll say, it's almost ready or it's close. The difference in close and ready is raw chicken versus cooked chicken, right? It's either finished or it's not. Men, Let's pick on ourselves a little bit. How many of you have some projects around the house? I'm about to get everybody in trouble. That are almost finished. They are close to finish. There is a difference in close and complete. Thank God we don't have a gospel that is close to finished. Thank God we don't have a gospel that is almost sufficient. The book of Colossians in highlighting the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ is teaching us, and especially in the last few verses that we've studied together, that the fullness of Christ in us means that we have everything we need for redemption. And what we're going to see today is the beauty of a gospel that is total and complete. Let's stand together as we worship and read God's word. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to begin together today in verse 11. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What a glorious gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, we bow before you today. I pray you help me to get out of the way of this glorious Bible text. Pray that you would increase that i would decrease that lives would be changed that lord for those that have not encountered and accepted this complete and total gospel that your holy spirit would overwhelm them and they would be saved lord for those of us that have encountered this complete and total gospel may we erupt in praise because we have victory in jesus our savior forever who sought us and bought us with his redeeming in jesus name amen Would you please be seated this morning? You see our big idea that's on the screen this morning, that God's work of redemption in a born-again believer is total and complete. Let's talk about that for just a moment before we jump right in. When we say that God redeems us, the word redeems means that we are bought back or that we are purchased, that you were a slave to sin, you were a slave to guilt, you were a slave to shame, you were a slave to Satan himself. You were not a child of God, but the Bible says that you were a child of the devil. But the Bible says that through the cross you were purchased or that you were redeemed and that when you became redeemed, John chapter 3, you were Born again, that you became a new creature in Christ. And if that is true of you, you cannot be partially redeemed and you cannot be partially born again. You are either completely saved or you were not saved at all. So we're going to explore that today. In fact, that is our first point today, that true believers are totally and completely saved, totally and completely saved. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, in him, it's talking about Jesus, in Christ, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Now, all throughout the New Testament, we see these discussions of circumcision coming up over and over again. When we walk through Galatians together, you saw it. it, it was, and what it is at its core is its legalism. We're gonna talk much more in depth about legalism next week, but, but suffice it to say, here is a group of Christians, people that are born-again believers. They are that most of those that are in this church are those that were pagan. They weren't from a Jewish background, but yet now there's a group and they called themselves the Judaizers. And what they believed was is that you needed Christ to save you, you needed Christ to redeem you, you needed Christ to be born again, but that wasn't all you needed. And time that someone tells you that Christ is not all you need, you need to put your ears up and realize this is a dangerous, dangerous teaching. Because they taught, even adult men, that if you truly wanted to go to heaven, not only did you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you needed to be physically circumcised. Now, can you imagine how well that went over inside the church? not only do we want you to believe these things, but we need you to actually go through the physical act of circumcision. And so Paul writes and defending against this over and over again, he said, I don't understand why it is that you keep thinking that everything is about outward things and external things when it's about that circumcision in verse 11 has already taken place because God has already done a circumcision on your heart. He has removed the evil. He has removed the decay. He has removed the sin and he has removed it completely and totally. He's already put that off when we understand what it means to be saved, we recognize that all of the things that were once our heart of stone, what it says in Ezekiel, has been removed, and now we have a brand new heart of flesh. Now, in understanding that, I think it's hard for us because there are some of you in here that struggle with exactly what I'm about. Maybe all of you that struggle with this, and I'm talking to born-again believers. I'm talking to saved people. How many of you that are born again, you're redeemed? You're saved, and you know that you are. You still struggle with sin. How many of you that know Jesus know that also that every day you are still in a battle and a struggle? In fact, is there anybody in here who would say, I'm saved, but I don't struggle with sin anymore? I don't know that that person exists. And if there was somebody that raised their hand, I would tell you to probably hold on to your wallet. Friends, I want to tell you today that that is normal. If you remember in Romans chapter 7, Paul talked about that. In Romans chapter 7, verse 15, he said, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, That is my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Have you ever felt like that? For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. Why is it that we continue to struggle, even though that our hearts have been circumcised and changed? It's not because you're not saved. It's because until you either die or are raptured that you live in a sinful body of flesh and you live in a sinful fallen world and we are going to continue to struggle. But what that does not mean is that you say, and many have done this, well, since I'm going to keep struggling, I'm just going to give into it. I can't help it. So I'm just going to give into it. Here's the difference. Now, it's not legalistic. We're not saying you must do these things to earn favor with God. It's not that, hey, you need to think this and do this and go to this place and be circumcised and do all of this list of things so that you can earn favor with God. The difference now is that I already have the favor of God because I am saved. I've been clothed in righteousness. So the reason that I try to do the things that God wants me to is not because I'm sitting before his throne room saying, Oh God, please accept me. Please let me in. Please love me. Here are my gifts. Here are my offerings. Do you understand that you couldn't do enough? That There couldn't be enough circumcision. There couldn't be enough legalism. There couldn't be enough works. no. When you understand the total and complete gospel, it's that you were made right before God because He has removed your heart of flesh. You died to who you once were. You were raised in Christ. You were born again. You've been washed by the blood of Jesus. So now I strive not so I can please God, but I strive to please Him because I've already found favor with Him, not because of who I am, but because of the gospel. That's a huge understanding. But he doesn't stop there. When you get to verse 12, He says this, having been buried with him in baptism, does that sound familiar? Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Now, there's been a little bit of debate about this verse, so let's just make it clear. Is Paul here specifically talking about physical water baptism? No. In this verse, Paul is talking about that we are all baptized the moment we are saved, that we are baptized into Christ. The reason that we baptize, and, and it's worth talking about this for just a moment, every child in the room, if you're a guest with us, and all of us need a refresher course every now and then, we fill up that baptistry with summit water. It comes straight out of a pipe and it fills that up. It is not holy water. It's no different than any other water. And the reason that we baptize is not because today when we celebrated with Tucker, we aren't celebrating that somehow he got saved because he went into the baptistry. He wouldn't be any more saved if he went into that baptistry than he would be saved if he took a bath at his house. The reason that we do that is to symbolize what God has already done. And that is that we, I have been crucified, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and now Christ lives in me. So I died to who I was. I was raised in Christ. I was forgiven of my sin and washed. So the reason we go into the baptistry is symbolic in our obedience to Christ to be able to tell the world what happened to us when we were radically saved by the power of the gospel. Now, when we talk about baptism and we talk about the understanding that we all, that we are baptized the moment that we are saved, how are we baptized? The Bible says we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Some people say the Holy Ghost. But what is baptism by the Holy Ghost or baptism by the Holy Spirit? And if you're saved, are you baptized in the Holy Spirit? You see, there there is a line of teaching that says that you can get saved and then you have a subsequent spirit baptism sometime later. Oftentimes that's authenticated by some type of signs and wonders. But I would tell you that the Bible teaches clearly you cannot be saved without being baptized by the Holy Spirit. If you are saved, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. And here's why. You could never be saved outside of the Holy Spirit. Outside of the Holy Spirit, you would never know you needed to be saved. You would never be convicted of sin. You would never desire the things of God. You didn't in your wretchedness one day say, I know I need Jesus. No, it's because the Holy Spirit worked in your heart. And when you accept Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And what we recognize is to not understand the Holy Spirit's role in salvation is to not grasp that all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of them were involved the moment you came to salvation have i been baptized with christ yes am i baptized in the holy spirit yes and the reason that we know that is because this salvation that we have is not partial but it is complete which what that means is if i've been buried with christ in baptism not just in the water baptism but i've been buried with christ in baptism and what what's the next phrase that we say and raised to walk what in newness of life. That doesn't happen when I die. That doesn't happen when the rapture happens. I already have a new life in Christ. So the victory that we have because of our salvation, the freedom that we have in Christ to love and to serve and to worship, that happens now because we are totally and completely saved. Number one. Number two. Number two. This is so important. True believers are totally and completely forgiven. Totally and completely forgiven. Look at what verse 13 says. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. Now watch this. He forgave us. What's the next word? What's the next word? All our sins. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. When we speak about the forgiveness of God, the grace of God and the forgiveness of God go hand in hand. And the forgiveness of God is completely and totally a gift of God. It is independent of any human work or merit. You can't earn his forgiveness when you go to someone, even a human being, and you say, I am sorry. You can't earn their forgiveness. Forgiveness has to be given despite of what you have done to them. When we come before the holiness of God and we reach out to him, I would tell you that the most exciting and beautiful and wonderful doctrines of scripture is the forgiveness of God. But it is also the one that most people struggle with the most. It is the doctrine that keeps people from salvation because there are people who have been lied to by their flesh They've been lied to by their minds. They've been lied to by the devil. And some of them have even been lied to by people to believe that because of their past, because of their issues, because of things on their life, that they cannot be forgiven. That God may be able to forgive someone else, but there's no way he could forgive me. And if you only knew what I had done, you would know that I'm beyond being able to be forgiven of God. That That is a doctrine straight out of the pit of hell. And sometimes... and and i want to address this head on because sometimes we treat people that that express that like they have a high degree of humility understand me in what i'm about to say your belief in god's ability to save you has nothing to do with you and everything to do with god I full well believe you that if there was a God who was only partially capable, then he probably couldn't forgive you because I know who I am and I know what I've done. And if his grace wasn't complete and perfect, then I wouldn't have a shot But my faith is not in my ability to be good enough to be saved. It's in a God who is so great and wonderful and gracious that even when I stand in my wretchedness, I'm able to say, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And the reason I can do that is because I don't have faith in who I am, I have faith in who He is. That's what drives the gospel. Totally and completely forgiven. Now, let me ask you back to the original question. A moment I asked you, I said, Well, have you studied for your test? Is, is dinner finished? Have you finished this project? What good would it do if God partially forgave you? What good would it do? Let's, say, let's just say for a moment that God forgave you of 99.9% of your sins. We'll go all the way to there. How much good would it do for you to be forgiven of 99.9% of your sins? It would do you absolutely no good at all. And the reason is, is that one sin is enough to separate you from the holiness of God. And so we praise God that his forgiveness is complete. That is based on the promises of God. It's also completely unparalleled in world religion or world history. You want to know the greatest thing that separates Christianity from everything else in the world? It's the doctrine of forgiveness. Every other world philosophy and religion teaches you that there's something that you must do to try to appease God. Christianity said that God did it on your behalf, that he did it for you, and that instead of you working to receive God's reward, that God gives it to you freely. It separates us from every other world religion when you see everything that's going on in the world right now i want you to understand that the greatest hope for the world is the gospel that when we see evil people driven by demonic forces and a demonic world philosophy that hate god and the people of god and the things of god the greatest thing that they need, the greatest thing that you and I need, the greatest thing that can happen is the gospel because when people understand that they are loved by their creator, forgiven by their creator, and redeemed by their creator, it not only changes how they relate to that God, but it changes how we relate to humankind as well. And then it says this, having canceled out the written code with its regulations, that was against us and stood opposed to us. This is referring to, uh, in those times, you would be given a certificate of debt. If you owed me money, I would present you with a certificate of debt and you had to sign it, acknowledging that you know you owe me. You following me? So when we think about our relationship with God, what is the certificate of debt that we have signed? We recognize that we owe him our lives. Why? Because we are debtors to God because we have broken his law. So let's talk about the law of God when we talk about what it means to be in the new covenant versus the old covenant. And this is huge. We see the Ten Commandments plastered everywhere, which we should. I'm pro Ten Commandments, but I am not for most people's understanding of why we should put the Ten Commandments up everywhere. If you're a teacher and you put them in your classroom, praise God for that. If they're on the side of a building, praise God for that. We need to be people that know the Ten Commandments. But it's the reason for the Ten Commandments so that every day you might read through the Ten Commandments and say, this is how I'm going to be righteous today. I'm going to keep all of these Ten Commandments. The purpose of the Ten Commandments when they were given to Moses is the same purpose today. This hasn't changed. It is to show you that when you read the Ten Commandments, that you have no hope, that you're a lawbreaker, that there is not one of them that you have not broken. We've shown this over and over and over again. So I'm a debtor to God because I have broken every single one of his laws over and over and over again. But yet it tells us here that he canceled out the written code. How was that done? To get a really good picture of this, we need to understand how things were printed back in the day. 2,000 years ago, we had, there were two forms of paper. One was one you're fairly familiar with, papyrus. And they would write on that. That's from a plant-based substance. And the other type was something called vellum. And vellum was made out of animal skin. Both were used, but they were written on with an ink. But the difference in the ink then and now is the ink did not have an acid base to it. So when you wrote on the papyrus, and certainly when you wrote on the vellum, it was very legible but because it didn't have acid it didn't sink in so what that meant was that you could take something and you could wipe off all of the words that had been written on the papyrus or the vellum so that you could then use that papyrus or that piece of vellum again what is so beautiful about the word picture that is being painted here is that when we sing about the fount that we come to in the blood of christ that was shed for our sins The blood of Christ is the very cleansing agent that was applied to the vellum. Because when you picture a piece of papyrus or a picture of vellum with the Ten Commandments over it, then you recognize that if your name was at the top of that and it started at your birth and it went all the way until your day of death and it wrote every single one of your sins, past, present, and future, every sin on it. That what Paul is describing here in Colossians is that what the death of Christ accomplished is that if you picture Christ on the cross, what do we call Christ on the cross? That he is our substitute. To be our substitute, that communicates that who should have been on the cross. <laughs> you and me, right? When Jesus was on the cross, do you remember that they put a sign over his head and it mocked him? Do you remember this? jesus christ the king of the jews and they placed it over his head had there not been a substitute and you had been the one hanging on the cross what could have been hung over your head the ten commandments and the reason the ten commandments could have been hung over your head is they are proof that you are a lawbreaker they are proof that you deserve the wrath of god and our lives give that evidence by every single sin that we commit So the beauty of the cross of Christ is as the blood drips from his hands and drips from his feet, when we say that that blood is applied to our hearts, It is applied to our hearts because that same blood is taken and it wipes off our lives just like it would have been wiped off the vellum so that when we stand before the Lord one day and we're going to be judged before him, they get out this piece of vellum or this piece of papyrus that ought to have every sin that you've ever committed written on it. But when they look down on it, it's completely blank. And the reason it's blank is because the blood of Jesus has been used as the cleansing agent and now there's not an indictment against you. that's the power of the gospel friends when i asked you just a moment ago i I think this is is huge that one little three letter word that you read out together in verse 13 he forgave us all he forgave us all our sins when jesus was on the cross He made several statements that are recorded for us in the Gospels. I think my favorite statement that Jesus made, maybe in all of the Gospels, but certainly on the cross, it's a three-word cry. And He said, It is finished. Sometimes some of you allow doubt to creep into your heart and creep into your life and creep into your mind about the forgiveness of God. And I want to remind you that when Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying that the penalty has been paid in full. When God sent Jesus, we talked about last Wednesday night, the incarnation of Christ. When he left heaven and he became a baby, born of a manger and lived 33 years on earth, only be taken to cruel Calvary's cross and crucified. What we look at when he cries, it is finished, is that God absolutely finishes what he starts And not only does he finish it, but he does it in victorious fashion. Point number three. Point number three. True believers are totally and completely victorious. Watch what it says in the last verse that we read together. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, who were the powers and authorities? don't get this confused. Certainly we know that there were Jewish powers and authorities that that wanted Jesus killed, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and we know that there were people like Pilate that was involved and Herod that was involved. but in this particular passage, the powers and authorities that he' talking about is talking about are the demonic powers that were assembled against Christ, not only at his crucifixion, but have been assembled against the person and work of God since Satan fell. Now, this is going to take just a second, but I think it'll be worth your time. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, to corrupt man and make him unredeemable, Satan took on the form of a serpent and, t- and went into the garden and tempted Eve. You can remember that she goes to Adam, they eat of the tree of the forbidden fruit, and at that moment, They were filled with shame, realizing that they were naked before a holy God. We know that then genetically passed on from Adam and Eve to every one of their grandchildren, which includes you and I, that we all inherited something but called a sin nature. Now, what is so awful about that is that sin nature separated you from God. And so from that moment on, God began the redemption process of getting ready to send a Messiah, a deliverer. And so Satan launches his all out attack to keep that from ever happening. As you read about what takes place all throughout the Old Testament, it is Satan trying to keep the Redeemer's seed from ever showing up. The captivity in Egypt, you can remember that story. They're trying to exterminate the people and trying to exterminate the Jewish people. In Esther, when Haman wanted to kill all of the Jews, that was a satanic effort, just like the efforts are today that want to eliminate Jewish people. It was a satanic effort effort that took place and then if we're to fast forward even further and you get to the new testament and you can remember that there's a baby born in Bethlehem and wise men came from the east and they told a king by the name of Herod and filled by demonic influence it was Herod that said let's kill every male child so that there can be no redeemer but Jesus Christ having lived and grown up finally in a last ditch effort they said we will kill this threat we will exterminate this one they call jesus and so satan and all the demons of hell thinking as they march to that hill called golgotha or calvary jesus christ is nailed to a cross and when he cries out it is finished all the demons of hell believing in that moment that they had conquered over Christ did not know that between Friday and Sunday, the Bible tells us that he went to pre- and preached to the spirits that were in prison. That's what 2 Peter tells us. Now, in the Apostles' Creed, it said that Jesus descended into hell. I used to not believe that because of those three words, it is finished. And I thought Jesus didn't have any more to pay, so why would he have gone to hell? But Jesus didn't go to hell between Friday and Sunday to continue to suffer. Jesus went to hell for the very reason that he would preach to the spirits in prison. Now, what is he preaching? Is he preaching redemption? Absolutely not. What he is preaching is the declaration that you have set out since the dawn of man to corrupt man so that he could be unredeemable and unsavable but I want you to know that you could not stop me, that I am God Almighty, the Son of the King, and that even though you thought you killed me, I want you to know that you're going to look up and that you're going to see, just like those women did at the tomb, that he is not here, that he is risen, because death could not hold him and the grave couldn't keep him. And Jesus Christ rises from the grave in grateful triumph with the recognition that no demon of hell, no horde, from the depths could possibly keep down the very one who not only created the world, but now owns it because he redeemed it. And friends, I would tell you, that's my God. That's my King. That's where my hope is found. Now, if that's the truth, and I believe it with all of my heart, if that's the truth, then his victory is our victory. But I'm not waiting to rise from the dead. I'm not waiting till the rapture to rise from the dead. I've already risen from the dead. I once was lost. I once was dead. But now I have a brand new life in Christ. I'm redeemed. I'm forgiven. I'm free. I'm justified. I'm full of joy and I'm full of hope. And that's not just going to be when I die and see Jesus. That's today. That's now. So you have a reason, church. You can clap you have a reason. Every one of you in here, you have a reason to smile. You have a reason to lift up your head because you recognize that your forgiveness, that your salvation, that your hope, that your victory is not partial, that he didn't do it part way, that he wasn't close, that it is completely and totally a work of God and that you stand today as a witness to what the gospel can do in someone's life. Now, what songs should somebody like that sing? Now, you're probably thinking of a lot of them. But I'm going to tell you what song we're going to sing. One of my all-time favorites. We're going to stand in just a moment, and we are going to cut loose on victory in Jesus. My Savior forever, who sought me and bought me with his redeeming love. He loved me ere I knew him. And all my love is due Him, friends. The reason we're going to sing that is because if you've never found victory in Jesus, you need to run, run, not walk. There's men outside, and there'll be men that are standing down here, and they want to tell you how you can experience the greatest victory you've ever had in your life. If you're not a part of this church, you say, "I want to be a part of the church that the church that loves the gospel, that loves Jesus like the testimony you heard today." You want to be one of those people that walks with people that love the Lord. You come and be a part of this church. But every single one of you, church folk, I want to talk to you for just a moment. Today's not the day for sadness. Today's not the day for pessimism. Today is a day for joy and a day for hope. So I want you to sing this song like Jesus actually rose from the grave. I want you to sing this song like he's coming back again. I want you to sing this song like you really have victory, like you're actually forgiven, like that your life and your eternity aren't defined by your sin, but they are defined by God who rose from the grave. I want you to sing this song because you have victory in Jesus. Would you stand with me? Lord Jesus, we stand today thankful for the victory that desires through the cross, thankful that you shed your precious blood so that we may have life and that we may have it more abundantly. God, I pray that in these moments that as we sing out, we think about what you did. We think about the triumph. We think about what it took so that we may have that life. Lord, I pray today that we would understand that we truly are free in Christ that our salvation is complete, that, Lord, we wouldn't allow our flesh or the devil or anyone else to convince us that we aren't or cannot be forgiven by the blood of Jesus, but, Lord, that we would walk in you, understanding that you, our glorious and great king, the only one who could do what it takes has finished the job completely. So our Savior, hear our cry now as we worship you, our victorious king. In Christ's name, amen.